Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink filling in for Eli James. It's January 9th, 2010, and this is Yahweh's Covenant People. Tonight I'll have Clifton Emmerheiser with me. Hello, Clifton. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll be talking about um, the, the church that Paul built, which really isn't, you know, Paul really didn't build the church at all, which is a, an ironic title. And, and um, I'll be loosely following my paper, Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church. How are you doing tonight, Clifton? Oh, pretty good. Uh, having a little trouble with my volume control here, but I think I've got it working. Okay. You, you know, a lot of men, even in a lot of men in the identity, in, in Christian Israel identity, should know better. They blame Paul for the monstrosity that we know as the Roman Catholic Church. And by doing that, they basically give the um, the church's claims that it was founded in succession from the apostles, they give those claims credibility, don't they? Um, actually, the uh, Roman Catholic start, uh, Church didn't officially start until, I think, in the 500s sometime. Right. There can be no... Catholic Church until Christianity is is legitimized, which didn't happen until the time of Constantine the Great, where it was um, it was basically decriminalized. There could be no Catholic Church before that, and and then not until the time that um, Justinian in the sixth century gave um, gave the the Roman bishop the temporal powers of the papacy. He established those and and power over all the other Christian bishops of the world, didn't he? Or, or of the Roman world, anyway. Well, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that Paul, uh, uh, what Paul set up as a church, uh, he, he didn't really set up a church uh, uh, in Rome because there was already Christians in Rome before um, Paul ever arrived. That's very clear, right, from his epistle to it Rome. Was, it was actually a branch of the um, Celtic church from Britain. And, and uh, if if, uh, if they understand the history around that, and of course that uh, that church that was set up by Paul, I mean you know uh, uh, wasn't uh, like I say it was already there. There was Christians in Rome before it got there, but um, that is not uh, that church completely died out of persecution, and uh, what uh, started later. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was never uh, an authentic church, not even for one uh, fraction of a second. Well, right, and and we're going to see that tonight. I I pray. The um when, when Paul wrote to the Romans, Peter wasn't even in Rome. Peter wrote his epistles. He tells us he was in Babylonia. He was in Babylon. Yeah. And Paul makes no mention at all about Peter being in Rome. And there were many um, household assemblies that Paul wrote to. and There's several of them that he mentions in, in Romans chapter 16. Well, basically, the church that uh, was started in Rome started in a home. Well, well, you know, the um, the prophecy in Zechariah, Yahweh says, I will save the tents of Judah first. And and I believe that's why Paul, um, well, that's why there was an assembly in Rome, because they were Zara Judah, weren't they? Right, and and that's why I believe Paul went into Macedonia and Illyria 
before he was allowed to go to the cities in Asia, because the cities in Asia were comprised mostly of um, Dan and Dorian, Ionian Greeks, and, and Celts, where, where Macedonia what was um, inhabited by Danans and Thracians and other people. However, Paul said he went to Illyria or Illyrica, and, and that was the chief city of the Dardans, and they were also Zarajuda. Uh, yeah, and he, and, and he went there before, you know, the Holy Spirit led him there before he was allowed to go to the cities in Asia. And you have, you have to even remember at uh, Constantine time, um, his, his mother was a Christian. So, now, uh, uh, now, his father was a pagan, but, but, but he did have, um, a connection with a, with a church, but I don't, I don't believe that even that was the, um, uh, what we'd consider the Roman Catholic Church today. Well, it, it by no means by no means can it be considered the Roman Catholic Church today. And and I have conflicting reports, but at least the first eleven recorded bishops of Rome were martyred. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no connection between the later bishops of Rome and and those who were mere political opportunists and and the early bishops of Rome. And none of them ever took the title um, Pope until at least the 5th century, probably later than that. Uh, I'm not sure when it became official. I don't really study the, the history of Catholicism. I, I'm more into well, there was, the there was the uh, title of Pontifex Maximus that um, – Well, that title is attested to uh, – you know, Livy tries to say that – and he might be right that that title goes all the way back to the earliest days of the Roman Republic. Well, see, it was willed. It was willed by, by will to to the um, uh, the family that had the uh, title Pontifex Maximus died out, so it was left by will to, uh, I believe. Uh, well, I, I know that there were people that do write that that the Attalus that Attalus of Pergamus had that title. Yeah, right. But not according to Livy. Oh, is that right? That's right. That. And, and Livy is a first century BC Roman historian, and and he says that the title existed from the earliest days of the Republic. Mm-hmm. So, so his, you know, I understand what Alexander Hislop and many other people wrote about that, and what Swift and Compare said about it, but Livy's testimony is contrary to it. And, and I don't, you know, I don't have another witness, but but that's I I can cite that in Libby. I did run across a historical record of um, that, that, that was that it wasn't from uh, uh, that source. Uh, there was another uh, record that that uh, confirmed that um, uh, one of the, you know the the king that had that title uh, died and and left it to the uh, Caesars. Okay, well, well, I know people have said that, mm-hmm. but but I'm just you know, you know I can the most original historian I can go I can cite is Livy. Uh, yeah, uh, I even found that in the line uh, in the library next, uh, you know, uh, searching for stuff one day and and um, okay, we'll have to look into that one day. But it doesn't really matter. It's Pontifex Maximus is um, it, it basically Pontifex comes from. The, the um, Greek and Latin word pontus, which means bridge, and yeah, Maximus yeah, is, right. is the chief. It means the chief bridge. The bearer of the title believed that he was the chief connection to the god, 
and 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 well, Jupiter at the time in in Roman times, and and um, you know, he thought that that they thought that they were the heads of the the heads of religion, and basically the Pope adopted that pagan title. Yes, mm-hmm. which is just terrible. Well, well, but but the Roman Catholic Church as we know it today wasn't really established until Justinian's time. Right, exactly, because it didn't even come out of the, come out from underground until Constantine's time, and and once it came out from underground, the political opportunists had had basically um, muscled the two, the true Christians out of the way in in commanding the church. That, well, that's clear in in. Um, in several early histories. Well, didn't Constantine move the the uh, church at Rome? Didn't he move it over to Constantinople? Well, well, no, he moved the Roman government from Rome to Constantinople. He couldn't move the Christian church. I, I mean, that that would follow the Christian people. And and it's interesting. Before we um, started this program tonight, I had looked up the um, the phrases Christian priest and Christian priests in the anti-post and post-Nicene fathers. And that phrase does not exist in early Christian writings until the time of the Council of Nicaea. But the early Christian writers did not use the term priest in relation to Christianity unless they were referring to the Old Testament or, or to the Melchizedek priesthood of, of Christ. Yeah, I find that interesting. Well, here we'll see tonight. I, I hope we'll see that... um. That the church that Paul did leave behind is nothing like the Catholic Church. It, it's nothing at all like like the the structure, the beast that the Catholic Church became, and and it's clearly prophesied in, in Daniel chapter eight. Uh, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter seven, and in Revelation chapter thirteen, that the the reign of the papacy or the rule of the popes. And Eli and I spoke about this a few weeks ago when we did Dan, the Daniel series. Well, was definitely considered to be the second beast of Revelation. Yes, and that was supposed to last for 1,260 years. And if you figure the time uh, when it stopped existing as to crowning the uh, kings of Europe, which Napoleon would have been uh, probably the last one crowned, uh, that would have to be the end. So all you have to do is figure from that time backwards and and that will uh, that will also it, it'd be uh, 1260 years backwards, and that would also take you to uh, the 500s. Well, right from the time of um, Justinian, who established the temporal power of the papacy, uh, roughly 529 BC. I'm sorry, 529 AD, until the time of Napoleon, who crowned himself emperor and and broke that power was 1260 years that was 1789 AD or thereabouts yeah I've wrote on that but I can't recall the um, exact uh, dates you know that Napoleon put on his own crown and and that type of thing I, I believe it was 1789 or or within it, two years of that anyway. yeah it'd be in that period there someplace so all you got to do is take 1260 years back and 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 you can uh, figure out when the uh, Roman Catholic uh, Church started according to what prophecy says. Right. I'm going to cite a paragraph from my paper. It is evident that the organization of the Romish Church was patterned very closely after the imperial Roman government and also incorporated the major elements of pagan Roman religion, 
The popes were very much like Roman emperors in many respects and exercised authority over the kings of Europe for many centuries. The title pontiff from the Latin pontifex is derived from the Latin word pontus or bridge. The title was used to pagan Roman priests and implies that the holder of the title was the bridge to their god. The title pontifex maximus, which belonged to the pagan Roman religious figurehead from early times, was taken by the emperors themselves. Priests and, and the Caesars did bear the title. Priests and church edifices or temples, nuns or vestal virgins, and many of their ceremonies and rituals, along with the colorful costumes and other symbols, are all derived directly from the pagan religions of old Rome. The canonized so-called saints replaced the pagan Roman pantheon, which included a collection of idols taken out of the nations conquered by Rome. The idea of a patron saint of anything, such as a place or an occupation, comes directly from Greco-Roman paganism, where gods or demons were given those same roles throughout pagan poetry. The College of Cardinals is a shadow of the Roman Senate, even though it came into existence. It, it didn't come into existence as we know it in, until the 12th century. The church did not start out as a beast. It developed into the beast. The diocesan system is quite like a system of provincial government. Each bishop is a proconsul or procurator. The title cleric signifies an allotment holder. The word is derived from the Greek word klerukos, which means one who held an allotment of land, especially to citizens in a foreign country. And, and the Athenian government, when, whenever they had a colony, they would have a klerukos who was you know, in charge of that colony for the interests of Athens. Now, by the very language used, the Roman church lays claim to the entire world through its system of clerics and the diocese. Of course, none of this has any support in the New Testament. None of it's in the Gospels. None of it's in the letters of Paul or in any other Christian writings before the, before the advent of the temporal power of the papacy. Studying the epistles of the apostles, a very different picture of, of the intended church life emerges. Do you have any comment to add to that? Well, I, uh, just that I agree with everything. You know, I, I've read things like that uh, other places, you know, and, and, and you're, you're pretty much on target. Wherever the word church appears in the standard translations of the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia. Difficult to discern from those translations and poisoned by false concepts of the word church, the ecclesia is an assembly of the citizens regularly summoned in secular Greek. And, and it's a political word, which does not in any way denote an edifice, or any systemized organization with a professional hierarchy, but it is rather the simply the assembly of the in the Bible, the assembly of those children of Israel who were summoned by Yahweh, and and that's you know that summoning is, is prophesied all throughout the books of Isaiah and the minor prophets, and and it's in Matthew and John. 
that the body of true Israelite Christians, either in the world or in any particular community, depending on the scope of the context, they are called the ecclesia or the assembly, whether or not they happen to be currently assembled together. And I'd like to demonstrate that from um, Acts 8.3. Saul outraged the assembly, entering into each of the houses, dragging away men and women. He delivered them to the prison. Now, now they translate that church. Now, now, if Saul outraged the church, dragging them from their houses, well, well they weren't in a building with, with a cross on it, were they? <laughs> yeah. with, a, with a priest officiating. <laughs> that they, they are the... Yeah, you know, they are the assembly, even though they're all in their own houses. Acts 9.31. So then the assembly, and, and the King James has church there also, throughout the whole of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, being built and going in fear of, of the Lord or the Prince, and comfort in the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So, so we see that they're called the Ecclesia, even though they're spread all throughout the land. They're not assembled. But they're still the people, they are still the assembly, whether they're assembled or not. Paul in 1 Corinthians writes, if then the entire assembly would gather in the same place. In other words, they're the assembly before they gather into the same place. So we see the word has no connotation of a building or an organization in the New Testament. Well, it's amazing. There's still people in Israel identity that they consider the church the building they go to. Right, and, and, and I, I, I've, I've been asked the question by some, where do you go to church? And I had to write back to this one guy. I says, I understand that the word ecclesia means the called out ones. Are you trying to tell me I'm not called out? That's my point. The, the, the ecclesia is the ecclesia whether or not they're assembled. Even when they're dispersed throughout the whole country, they're still the ecclesia. They are still the assembly. The called out people is what they are. That's what the word means. Well, you could take an automobile and drive around town, and you see white white people here and there. Uh, they're they're the ecclesia, except they don't know that they are. Well, right. If you go out your door and you see a, a, a white man walking down the street, you'll you'll see part of the ecclesia. You're seeing the ecclesia walk down the street. Exactly. And, and it has nothing to do with any building with, with um, crosses and priests and, and nuns. and. Well, I think that Ecclesia is used even for a gathering of soldiers to go to war, isn't it? Well, it was actually a political word used of the people who had the, um, the, the, the citizenship and the voting rights in a city, in a Greek city. They were the Ecclesia, whether they were assembled or not they were the ecclesia and and when the time came necessary to make decisions concerning the fate of the city because in in ancient greece every city was its own state that's where we get the term city states they gathered they were the ecclesia and not anybody could join them that they were the people with certain rights and privileges of the city you couldn't go to any greek city and become a citizen they had roles they they had citizenship roles, and and only certain people were entitled to be on those citizenship roles, depending upon the particular city. In Athens, you had to be a male adult of one of the founding families of Athens to be a member of the Ecclesia. 
to be on the Athenian citizenship rolls. You couldn't move to Athens. I, I mean, they did. Um, there were complaints about people bribing their way on to the rolls, and I'm sure it happened. But under normal circumstances, you could not just move to Athens and start voting and, and, and taking part. You, you weren't a citizen. You couldn't be a citizen because your family wasn't one of the founding families. And, and the Christian assembly, the Christian ecclesia, I must say, we have the same idea because the promises are only to the children of Israel, and Yahshua Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So if you're, you're not from one of the founding families of Israel, you can't be a part of the ecclesia. It's that simple. So you can't be a member of the church. You're born into it. That, that's the idea of sperma. <laughs> yeah, I had a person that uh, sent me an email, and he was going to uh, invite me to be one of the elect. And I wrote back to him that I was born of the elect, that uh, I was born under contract. And when Isaac uh, was put on the altar, I was put on the altar. Absolutely. And then, when, and when Christ was crucified, uh, 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 I was purchased at that point. I was purchased back. Every Israelite was purchased back when was purchased back from the, their. Alienated situation. I just alienated wrote back to that situation. guy and I told him he didn't have any authority to do what he he was telling me he could do. Absolutely not, because you you know if you if you're of the um if you're of the Holy Seed, you're a member of the church. Yeah, you are the church. You you are a member of the assembly, and nobody can take that away from you. Nobody could throw you out of it, except Yahweh Himself. Early Christians gathered not to participate in any rigid program of rituals, scripted and repetitious from week to week. Nor did they gather merely to participate in the Lord's Supper. And in fact, at 1 Corinthians 11.22, Paul says, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Which the, the Romish church has also made into a vain ritual, as, as Paul chastises um early Christians for in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 26. Yahshua set the example of communion for us. In a private home at dinner with his loved ones, we should follow his example. Paul's one recorded example of a communion, an act of communion, is at Acts 27, verses 33 to 36, to which we should compare to Luke 24, 30, where praising and offering thanks to Yahweh, he broke bread and shared it with his fellows without pomp or ritual. Early Christians gathered to learn. The primary teaching instrument was the Word. Since books were very scarce, being very costly to produce, early Christians couldn't afford them, and they had to gather in one place in order to receive the Word. And, and there's... Um, there's instances of that that's very clear in Acts chapter 17 and Romans chapter 15 and 16. Paul mentions the scriptures often in his letters, and the record shows that he fully expected every Christian to access the scriptures. By contrast, the Catholic Church, the Romish Church, purposely withheld the scriptures from the common people for for probably about well why I nearly a thousand years in my in my original paper but it was at least seven or eight hundred 
even putting to death people who dared to translate the scriptures from Greek or Latin so that the common people could understand them. That's how far the church went to keep the scriptures out of the hands of the people. Well, you know, it says that the Bereans um, searched the scriptures. Uh, uh, they right, had, I, they I had to have a copy of it to search them, didn't they? Exactly. And I have a citation here. I have that citation here, and I'm going to read it when I finish the paragraph. Paul would certainly not have approved of the church behavior. Until the 1960s, the Romish church ceremony and ritual was always conducted entirely in Latin, and, and not even original Latin, but a, ecclesiastical Latin, which was quite different, which the, the great majority of its attendants never even understood, a practice which is absolutely contrary to Paul's very own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where, where he explains that he'd rather speak um, five words in the assembly that men could understand than, than a multitude of words in a tongue, right? So, so the Catholic Church did precisely the opposite of what Paul's letters state should be done. Acts 17.2. I'm going to read from my translation. And as was customary with Paul, he entered into them, into the assembly, and for three Sabbaths, he argued with them from the writings, explaining and presenting that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and be resurrected. At Acts 17.10, Paul says, Then the brethren forthwith sent off Paul and Silas by night to Beroia, who departed, arriving in the assembly hall of the Judeans. These were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica, who accepted the word with all eagerness, each day examining the writings or the scripture, if these things would hold thusly. 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, Coming, bring the cloak, which I left behind in the Troab with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. So we see Paul is a proponent of um, the people reading the scripture. And the Catholic Church denied the scripture from the people for Almost a thousand years. Well, it's ridiculous, the argument uh, that, that uh, they make that Paul set up the Roman Catholic Church. Because what he set up isn't anything at all uh, like the Catholic Church. Well, of course it's not. It's incredible. He set up exactly the opposite of what the Roman Catholic Church became. absolutely incredible that that people blame Paul for the Catholic Church is incredible. Matthew sixteen eighteen. We're going to talk about that in a little while. That's um, you know, where Peter's giving the giving the keys to heaven or or whatever the Catholics claim, um, which is crazy too. It's crazy that they they point to that to found their own authority when when that there's no um evidence for, for Peter leaving that with anybody whatsoever. Nowhere in the New Testament is it ever mentioned that there is any one head over the assembly, Yash, except Yahshua Christ himself. And nowhere in Scripture is it mentioned that any local assemblies of Christians would be subject to any other authority but Christ himself. Paul himself disowned lordship over anyone's faith, 2 Corinthians one twenty four. 
I would not rule over your faith. Not that I would rule over your faith. He said it a couple of times. The, the Romish popes have always claimed the title Vicarious Filii Dei, which amounts to 666 counting the value of its letters in the Roman system. And that means substitute for the Son of God. In contrast, Paul wrote at Galatians 3.28, All you are one in Yahshua Christ. And at Ephesians 5.23, he wrote, Christ is the head of the assembly, where the verb is in the present tense, not in the past tense. And Paul said it, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in these sufferings on your behalf, and I substitute for those deficiencies of the afflictions of the anointed with my flesh on behalf of the body itself, which is the assembly. The term anointed is simply another word for the children of Israel. It, it's, you know, Paul never wrote anything about Yahshua Christ needing a substitute. Colossians 1.24 is very poorly translated. And, and it should be apparent that dead men need substitutes. And that Yahshua Christ, who lives, certainly does not need a substitute. How could a living God need a substitute? <laughs> the, the popes are pretty brazen, aren't they? Yeah, and that 666 is on their crown. And and I have one of the few. Um, I, I got a book here that's that's got a picture, and, and it's old 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 book, you know, uh, back around the uh, near the beginning of the 1900s, and um, how they how they put that, you know, it must have cost them a lot of money at that time to make a colored picture, but it's colored, and. Um, it, uh, it's, it's actually a picture of, of the, the crown that the uh, uh, Pope wears, and, and the uh, it isn't the Arab uh, thing, the 666, but if you add up the, um, the uh, letters that's in Viker of Christ, it totals, you know, with, with the X's and the I's and the L's, it totals 666. Right, and, and it's a Latin it's a Latin phrase, and it totals up to 666 in the Roman number system, in the Latin language. So it's it's pretty clear. I I mean this this isn't anything that's um that's far reaching. And and a lot of people go to great lengths to make somebody somebody or other out to be the the antichrist by saying that his name adds up at the six 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 in in this language or that language, but it, it's very clear that vicarious filii day, a Latin saying, sums up to six hundred and sixty six in a Latin language. There's no mistaking that. Well, that that is the the one that Daniel is referring to. Well, absolutely, and I can't imagine anybody being more antichrist than one claiming that he could substitute for, for Yahshua Christ. And somehow they were getting they were getting uh, uh, Canaanites in as Canaanites or as as popes. I mean, oh, I'm Canaanite sure. Jews. I'm sure. I don't know what exactly when when the first ones were, but I know that the Demodicis. I'm I'm sure are Canaanites, and I, I wouldn't doubt that the Borgias weren't Canaanites either. All of those um, Southern Italy crime and banking families. 
that's Jewish from the from the right from the beginning. Talk about Matthew sixteen eighteen and the changing of Simon's name to Peter. And this is mentioned in Mark three sixteen, Luke six fourteen, and John one forty two. But it's only in Matthew's gospel it's only Matthew's gospel which has the statements attributed to Christ in Matthew sixteen, eighteen to nineteen. And and I'm gonna pull them up. It's it's gonna take me a second to pull them up. I didn't have them ready. Un- unless you have it handy there. Uh no, huh? Oh, oh what uh what uh uh Well book, I get it. Book, uh, book uh chapter and so on. I wanna read Matthew sixteen um verses sixteen to eighteen. I have it right here. Oops, I passed it up. I should have had it ready. I'm I'm lazy. Matthew sixteen sixteen. And replying, Simon Petrus said to him, You are the anointed son of Yahweh who lives. And replying, Yahshua said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I say to you that you are a stone. That's my translation. Mm-hmm. Yet upon this bedrock shall I build my assembly, and the gates of hate shall not prevail against it. And my translation makes an important distinction there that none of the church translations make. And that's that that word in the Greek, that word stone is petros. And that's what it means. It's a stone. But the word rock is petra. And and rock means a, like a rock ledge or a shelf of rock, a big fixed rock or a bedrock. Well, like they call Petra, they call that that probably the same word, isn't it? Well, yes, it's that, the same word as the city Petra with the huge buildings carved out of the stone. Yeah. And and those huge stone, yeah, you know, basically they're they're stone mountains. And and that's Petra. And that's what Petra means. It it's a very large um bedrock stone that that you know, we see in certain places around the country. What we'd call a boulder today, right? Well, well, yeah, but it, it's even bigger, even than, bigger a, than a boulder. You know, it even could be bigger than a boulder, right? And that's, you know, a petros is only a stone that you could pick up and throw. And that's an important distinction in Greek, and that's the distinction made in in the Scripture. But the church translators, they translate that in, in a manner that we, it, it's often perceived that Peter is the stone that the rock is built, that the church is built on, and and so that if the bishops of Rome claim that this was handed down to them from Peter, that that's where they get their pretense of authority from. Yeah, and so if that's the case, the church is just built on a little pebble, then isn't it? Well, well, right. In reality, the church, the Catholic Church, <laughs> even if it came down from Peter, they're only built on a pebble. Because that's all that Petros means. <laughs> it's a small stone. And, and Christ is making a clear contrast in Matthew 16 that's lost in all those translations. He's telling Peter, you're just a little stone. And I'm going to build my church upon bedrock. It, so, And he told Peter that he wasn't um, belittling him. But he's telling him basically, basically 
He's telling Peter that Peter's only one stone in, in the church. And, and even Peter saw this, this distinction because in his own epistle, he calls his readers living stones. Yeah, I was going to refer to that, that somewhere it's mentioned we're all living stones. And that's Peter's own words. So, you know, even though his name, you know, the name that Christ gave him means stone, Peter says that we're all living stones. And Paul intones the same thing very often. Well, if that's the case, then we're all popes. Right, we're all popes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the hell with the Bishop of Rome. Um, Peter even describes um, Yahshua Christ as the chief cornerstone. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And Paul describes Joshua Christ as the foundation of his own building. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. So if we are all stones, and Joshua Christ is the foundation of his own building and the chief cornerstone, what need do we have for a pope? Well, there's no room for a pope in there. I mean, I don't see anything about any other layer of, of brick and water in between. The authority given to Peter by Joshua, and and and, and the, the Catholics love to point to this, and it's Matthew sixteen nineteen. And, and let me read it. I shall give to you the key, the little keys, and that's what the verb means. That the noun means. I'm sorry. The little keys, it's a diminutive word of the kingdom of the heavens. And he whom you should bind upon the earth shall be bound in the heavens. And, and Yahshua is speaking to Peter in Matthew sixteen nineteen. But let's go to Matthew eighteen eighteen, And Yahshua is talking to a whole group of his disciples. And he says, truly I say to you, whoever you shall bind upon the earth shall be bound into heaven. That's the same thing he told Peter. So Peter's um, not really receiving anything that nobody else is, is he? Yeah. You know, basically, it's the same promise. In other words, a person makes an agreement. That same agreement's made in heaven, right? Well, I I, I believe so. It, it's... um. It's well, you know, King George. It's a little mysterious, and, and the, the the saying can be interpreted in various ways. You know, King George. He was in uh, uh, when they um, uh, made uh, Palestine a protectorate under the British. You know, and they kept coming him, kept coming at him uh, every day, and and uh, one day the Arabs done something, and the next day the the Canaanite Jews did something, and, and and they were fighting back and forth like back then, like they were now. And one day he got tired of it. He says, let them settle it by blood. Well, he bound that on earth, and and they've been settling it by blood ever since. Yes, they have, and and there's no other settlement. And I thought of this scripture when when, when I read where, where what he said there. He bound it, and I don't think Queen Elizabeth II has enough sense to... Uh, unbind that. So one day you read where a bunch of Arabs get killed, or uh, and then the next day a, a bunch of Jews. And, and that's Satan's house divided against itself. I, I mean, I revel in that. I, I wish I, w I would read more of that. <laughs> that's the truth. Let them all kill each other over there. 
the, the only people that seem to care about it are um, John Hagee and Jerry Falwell and those, and those turkeys. I, I don't and, – and the Jews use it as an excuse to collect more money. Yeah, I remember one time I turned on the television and John Hagee had eight or ten Jews right there on his platform. Embracing the devil. Yeah. And he had that, and then uh, Netanyahu, he he uh, he spoke for a little bit from Hagee's uh, pulpit. And, and in in 2 Corinthians, Paul says very clearly that um, light has no agreement with darkness. How, how could you be a Christ denier and, and be accepted into a Christian church? It's crazy. And, and that shows you that John Hagee is just a, um, you know, the front man for the best religion that Jews could buy. Well, John Hagee went and married a Mexican, and uh, most of the Mexicans have Jewish blood, too, so uh, his wife's probably got some Jewish blood, you know, Canaanite Jewish blood. Well, I would read Jeremiah 31, verses um, 28 through 30, and I would say that John Hagee is sucking down crates, cratefuls of sour grapes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, you can't swallow him any faster than he is, eh? <laughs> A sour grape will make you make your mouth pucker pretty good, you know. Yeah, well, it puckers and he starts lying and he can't stop himself. Well, the Romish pulp, the Romish pulp cult—that's what it really is. It, it claims an unbroken chain of succession from Peter and Paul through a line of bishops of Rome down to today, and it claims its authority from Peter being the rock upon which the Roman Catholic Church is built. And, and we've seen, first, that that's not true in Scripture, that that doesn't wash in Scripture once it's properly co- translated. And, and we've seen it in an examination of history reveals that, that the first claim is a lie. The early bishops of Rome were martyred in the persecutions, and most later bishops were mere political opportunists. An examination of Scripture, including Paul's epistles, reveals that the second claim is a lie. In reality... The Roman Catholic Church is built upon the bones of the saints, and and that's true, um, that that's true literally. I, I mean, it's true figuratively. If you read Daniel um, seven twenty five and and Revelation six nine and Revelation twelve seventeen, but it's also true literally. I, I found this um this article in Archaeology Odyssey, in in the March April two thousand one edition on page sixty. I think I have this somewhere on my website. LinkedIn, a, a PDF file of this, and, and it explains how St. Peter's Basilica, well, which is kind of like the chief temple of the Roman Catholic religion, is actually built on top of an old Christian graveyard. Hmm. That it actually sits on top of an, a large necropolis, or, or necropolis meaning city of the dead, an, an underground burial place. And St. Peter's, the, the chief Christian, I'm sorry, the chief Romish Catholic temple is built on the bones of the dead, literally. That's incredible. (laughs) To me it is. I mean, to me that's totally ironic. I I always um, thought it was. um, There's some evidence, too, that um, uh, Peter's bones, uh, along with some others, may have been shipped up to Britain. Yeah, right. Around the 600, you know, I I don't know whether they, um, if that's true or not, but there's a story about it. So uh, Peter's bones may not even be under 
in that graveyard there? No, no, they may not be. But but it's still um well it's called Saint Peter's Basilica, but it really has no connection at all with Peter probably. Uh, I'm sure. It, it's I mean they could name it what they want. That doesn't make it true, huh? I'm sure Saint Peter surely wouldn't want anything to do with it. But or the real Peter, I should say. Paul wrote not to a popish one true church at Rome. He wrote his epistle to all those in Rome who were beloved of Yahweh called saints. And and I didn't see any of those I didn't see canonization papers in the New Testament for any of those saints. I think they were born saints. They were um, that they. If, if you're a child of Israel and you sanctify and separate yourself from from the other races and and obey the commandments of Yahweh, that makes you a saint, doesn't it? Well, that's right. You have to be to be a saint. You have to be declared, uh, declared a saint by the Pope, don't you? Well, right. And that's that's the Pope can't make a saint. The saints come out of your loins, you know. The, the sperma comes out of the loins of Abraham, not out of the um, out of the out of the desires of men. Nowhere did Paul recognize any single leader of the Roman Christians in his epistle. In the Revelation, Yahshua Christ sent messages to seven different assemblies, all of them independent and not to one true church. Revelations one. 11. And Rome was not even considered amongst the 70 assemblies. How could even the enemies of popery or churchianity possibly blame the Romish Catholic beast on Paul? It can't be done. You can't do it. Well, when you compare history to the scripture, Paul cannot be blamed for the Roman church. And and we should probably go on to... um. Well, well, the rest of my paper examines what Paul did ordain or, or what he did leave behind in his epistles a little more closely. Paul was reckoned as an apostolos, which is a messenger, ambassador, or envoy. In spite of his modern critics, there is no indication that the original 11 apostles ever denied Paul this title. But rather, they respected him as an apostle. And, and that's evident in um, Acts chapter 15, but more importantly in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Once the lost nations of Israel received the gospel, there was no longer a need for the office of apostle, and there was no successor to any apostle ever appointed. Only the original messengers of Christ were ever considered apostles in any of the church writings. Yet Paul even counted himself as a mere servant or minister. And there's many examples of that in, in Scripture. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 4, and so on. And, and his, even though Paul's unique concern as an apostle, was for all of the assemblies, 2 Corinthians 11.28, many of which the record shows that he himself founded, Paul never claimed to have any subordinates. He never had a subordinate. 
He only had colleagues. Romans chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 4, 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul used the word colleague about 15 times. And the Greek word is synergos, which means a working together, a joining or helping in work. And as a substantive, as a noun, it means a fellow workman. And the King James Version renders it helper. But it also renders it in several places, more correctly, fellow laborer. And, and helper may imply a subordinate role to some, but the Greek word does not have any connotation that your sonergos is subordinate to you. Yeah, uh, you you uh, you speak about that substantive, and there's probably people that's listening that don't understand what a substantive is. Right, a substantive is a word that is not normally a noun, and and usually in Greek it's a participle, which is a form of a verb, or a um, an an adjective, and when it's used with an article, it becomes a noun. It's used like a noun. And sunergos is is usually is in, normally an adjective. But it's used as a noun in the New Testament that appears with the article. And and there are many other adjectives that appear with, with an article which become nouns. Like curios, the Lord, or Satan, which is an adjective. It means adversary, but it, it means the adversary as an as an a substantive, meaning a particular entity. So Paul had no subordinates. He only had colleagues and fellow workers. There's nowhere where Paul ever claimed to rule over anybody's faith in any of his letters or where he ever claimed to exert authority over anyone. Paul's letters were to be were written to be read to the entire assembly and not to merely be summarized or interpreted by some priest, but to be read in full. And he states that at 1 Thessalonians 5.27 and 2 Thessalonians 2.15. And, and he even recommended that they read his letters to other assemblies besides those who were initially addressed. And we see that at Colossians 4.16, which surely also encouraged the copying and distribution of his letters and probably helped us save some. I think Paul probably wrote many more epistles than those which we now possess. And and the ones which we have themselves often indicate that, that others are missing. That there's at least two missing epistles mentioned in the epistles that he has, that we have of his. They're mentioned that um, 1 Corinthians 5.9 is a, is a former letter to the Corinthians. And, and in Colossians 4.16, there's a letter mentioned, I think it's to the Laodicians that's, that's missing. But I think he, he probably wrote dozens of epistles. Uh, I mean, we only have, what, 14, 15 of his epistles? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, I think we have 14. I, I count Hebrews as Paul's, and I, I think that, that gives us 14 epistles of Paul. And I think he probably wrote hundreds. And then there's some that claim that there's a 29th chapter of Acts. I, 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 you know, I, I don't know for sure whether that's true or not. 
I personally reject it because I've never seen the Greek. I'd like to see the Greek. I'd like to see providence for it, and, and there is none. Uh-huh. It, it just appears in some French book in the Middle Ages. It and some appears. monk could have uh, sat down and pulled that right out of thin air. Right. And and I don't, you know, I... I I don't believe in believing anything until I see archaeological providence for it. I mean, I believe in the New Testament because, well, not only because of the veracity of the prophecy, but also because the New Testaments that we've dug out of the ground that are clearly 1,800 years old are very much like the ones that were handed down through time. Yeah, you know, there's really not much difference at all when you consider the um, that most of the differences that there are are very minor. And, and don't change anything, except that you can see where certain passages were added into the scripture, like the end of Mark and, and certain sections of John and Luke. Well, you got the period of the hunters, and and uh, and we're definitely in the period of the hunters now. So, uh, archaeological uh, finds are very important. Right, the period of fishers is long over with, isn't it? Yeah, Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. Yeah, that this, I believe that's Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. I will send many many fishers, and then after that, I will send many hunters. And I've and never church- heard a, I've never heard a sermon when I was in church day. Anybody ever preached about uh, the hunters? I don't think the churches ever talked about the hunters. I, I I've never heard anything, except for un, until you wrote about it. I've never heard any anybody write about it. The hunters. They all talk. They love to talk about the fishers, but nobody. Well, Howard B. Rand, uh, Howard B. Rand uh, pointed out the hunters quite a bit. Uh, okay. Well, well, that's good. But who? Nobody else has written about them. Yeah. I've I've never seen it. Jeremiah sixteen sixteen. The period the period of the fishers is dead, and and that goes hand in hand with another prophecy. That that goes hand in hand with the prophecy in Jeremiah thirty one, that the day is coming when when nobody will say know the Lord for they all shall know me, and and we all know Yahweh. Every, every white man has had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Well, and, church and Andy's that, always they say, do you know the Lord? <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it's more important. Does he know us? That's much more important. Does he know us? Because if you're not one of those Amos 3-2 people, then he doesn't know you. Get away from me. I never knew you. And and in Amos 3-2, he tells the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So if you're not one of those Amos 3-2 people, you, you don't have much coming at the day of judgment, do you? While Paul and his ministry had allocated resources, both human and monetary, and, and I cite 1 Corinthians 4.17 and, and Romans 15.31 and 2 Corinthians 8.9, he coerced no one, as he stated in 1 Corinthians 16.12, and as is evident in his epistles. His service to the saints at Jerusalem must be understood in the context of the social climate there at the time. It does not provide a reason or an excuse to beg support 
for missionary work in foreign lands to alien peoples, as we so often witness in this age. The example Paul set for himself was to work for his wages in order to support himself, Acts 18.3 and 1 Corinthians 4.12, which he also recommended others to do, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, 2 Thessalonians 3.9-12, and 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul left no model for a professional priesthood which lived off of the fat of the community like parasites, Matthew 23, Mark 12, 40, and Luke 20, 47, which we see in the Romish church and in all of its offspring. There is not even a mention of any word priest in connection with a new covenant assembly in any of Paul's writings. The only time he mentions the word priest is talking about the Melchizedek priesthood of Joshua Christ. And, and, and Peter only mentions the word priest when he calls the children of Israel, a nation of kings and priests. That's not a nation of kings with priests, is it? It's a nation of kings and priests. In other words, we're all kings and priests. Well, every father is a priest of his own family. And, and the king of his own house. And that's, what, that's a Christian ideal. There's no room for priests, for a professional priesthood. Only the most ignorant and unjust men could blame Paul for that monster which the Romish Catholic Church became, or for modern Judeo-Churchianity. Because those things are certainly not found in any of Paul's instructions. Well, you know, if, if, if the Roman Catholic Church was a true church, uh, Peter would have wrote in Latin, wouldn't he? Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess he should have. No. Yeah, you know, and they actually kicked Greek to the curb for for hundreds of years. It's a shame that that they 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 made Latin the ecclesiastical language and the official language, and and all of the original literature is written in Greek. That that's I'm I'm sure a lot of um hanky panky was they 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 made room for a lot of hanky panky to go on in church teaching there, huh? But, you know, the Protestant church isn't too much better than the Catholic church. It's, uh, the way I look at pro uh, Protestantism, it's just sort of like Catholic Catholicism warmed over. Absolutely. I, I mean, some of the Reformers, that they did good. Some of the Ger most of the German re Reformers did not accept the... Um, the, the De Medici's devices concerning, you know, changing the, the meaning of usury. And and they did good to put away a lot of the idolatry and the Mary worship, but they didn't go far enough. They, they didn't go far enough in reforming the, the Christianity. I just look at the the um, reformations and uh, counter-reformations and all that as just part of the punishment that we had to go through. Absolutely. And and we're still going through that punishment. Well, most of us, I mean, we're still being punished. And, and even those of us who don't deserve to be punished deserve to be punished along with the rest of the nation. That's the way it is. It, it's a national punishment. It's not an individual punishment. Uh, I mean, there's individual judgment, but it, it's the nation, it's our entire race that's being judged, that, that's being put through the fire. That's the way it is. We have to suffer with the rest of them.
if they uh, until they un understand uh, that we're Israel, and then understand the two seed line, they just don't know what's going on. Exactly not. If you if you don't have the two seed line truth and the historical truth concerning the children of Israel, and if you can't identify both sides of the equation in Genesis three fifteen, that then your your faith is is I don't know what it could be based on. It's not based on the Bible, that's for sure. Okay, here we have mentioned some of the various assemblies which Paul wrote to. Paul founded Christian assemblies throughout the cities of the Greco-Roman world, as the records in Acts and his epistles attest. Note that Paul did not found the assemblies at Rome, which he wrote to before he ever visited. That the assemblies which Paul founded in Anatolia were valid Christian assemblies is verified by both Peter, who wrote to them, 1 Peter 1.1. Those, you know, a lot of people miss that. Those, that. those two epistles that Peter wrote, they're to the uncircumcised. They're not to the circumcision, those epistles. Those epistles are to the assemblies which Paul founded. I think that's why they were saved. If Peter had written them to the to the um, to the circumcised, we would have never had them. The the Jews would have got rid of them a long time ago, and, and I'm sure Peter probably did write epistles to the uncircumcised, and we don't have them. That's I I mean I understand it's conjecture, but I sincerely believe that Peter probably wrote more than two short epistles, and and it's it's um, demonstrable that Peter's. The, the two epistles he did write are to the the, um, the assemblies in Asia, which he did not found, which Paul founded. Yahshua Christ himself in Revelation chapters one and two, and well, well one eleven and two one to three twenty two, in his message to the seven churches, he commended a lot of the assemblies that Paul founded. He addressed them, and, and most of those assemblies that Yahshua mentions in the seven churches of the Revelation. Paul founded those. Paul left no successors. There's no record of a successor in any of his writing. He 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 um that there were a few gentlemen, Timothy and Titus, who were bishops of their own independent little assemblies that he dealt with, but he left no successors. So there's no um there, there's no foundation for Romish Pope succession in the scripture. And Paul warned the assemblies that they were on, they were on their own after his final departure. It is a clear part of his message in Acts chapter twenty, verses seventeen to thirty-eight. He basically told the assemblies that they were in charge of themselves. Here, Paul tells the leaders of the assemblies gathered to him that they are the overseers. Or, or that's the word that, that that Greek word episcopus is actually the word that the medieval, through medieval English that the word bishop comes from. The overseers of the individual assemblies are the overseers of the church or the assembly of Yahweh and nobody else. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. I don't know how it could be any clearer. I see that you're using two different Greek words here and you come to the conclusion that they really mean the same thing. Well, well, yeah, the word episcopus and the word presbyter, and and I'll probably get to that in in the um, 
and as soon as I give a synopsis of this um, this paragraph. But it's evident from the scripture, and, and many verses can be cited, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapters 4 and 5, Colossians chapter 1. It's perfectly evident that Paul left behind him a collection of independent, autonomous Christian assemblies. That's what he fully indicates in Acts chapter 20. And both Peter and Joshua Christ and their messages to those assemblies acknowledge and recognize that. The internal structure of a local assembly from the epistles of Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament shall be examined next. Beginning with a compilation of the terms used to describe the governance within each assembly, which we see as an autonomous Christian community. Episcopus. That word became the Latin episcopus and, and the Middle English biscop. And, and eventually bishop. That's the the very, it, the word bishop actually comes from the Greek word episcopus or episcopus. And it's a noun. And, and it means an overseer or a supervisor or a guardian. And it's actually a, um, it is a Greek political word that there were intendants or public officers Call of, of a city called the Episcopus, and and that's um that that word is often translated bishopric or bishop or office of a bishop in the New Testament. So it's not really translated at all. It should be a supervisor or, or a superintendent. And and the word presbyter is an elder. And Peter uses those two words interchangeably. It, it seems to me that the, um, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit, that the episcopus is elected by the people from out of the elders. But Peter uses the words interchangeably. And, and a presbus or a presbuterus is an elder, and it means an old man. It's a literal word that means an old man in Greek. And it appears over 60 times in the New Testament as a noun. And it's usually an elder or a council of elders is presbyterian. And and in um oddly in 1 Timothy 4:14 instead of council of elders they they just borrowed the word and called it a presbytery. But but it's very clear that in Peter's epistles in um, 1 Peter 2.12 and 1 Peter 5.2 that these words are interchangeable, even though they mean to. And I cite Thayer in my paper, who explains that the episcopus comes from the Greek um, culture and the presbyteros or the idea of an elder comes from the Hebrew culture. And let me say that if you read the tragic poets, the early 5th century B.C. poets, they they make, um, you know, allusions. They make references to a town elder also. So so the, um, the idea of an elder isn't exclusively Hebrew. That, that's um, an early Greek idea that, that probably did not survive into the Hellenic Age when um, – 
when all of the cities and towns had publicly appointed officials rather than their own self-governing officials. Do you have anything to say about Episcopoi, about <laughs> bishops? Well, I, I noticed that you've got uh, an overseer and a supervisor. Uh, uh, well, right. They're both um, renderings of the same word, and, Episcopus. And, and those words sure sound like uh, a little like Episcopalian and uh, uh, Presbyterian. <laughs> well, right, because that's right, exactly. Those... Protestant sects took their names and their ideas of governance from those words. Uh-huh. The, the Presbyterian is, is where the Presbyterians get their name from. And, and that Presbyterian means Council of Elders. And Episcopus is where the Episcopalian Church gets its name from. And the word Episcopus is an overseer or a supervisor of a local Christian assembly. In, but, in the Christian but those context. churches aren't what they used to be. Oh, absolutely not. And and um, what we will get into later is that the the elders and, and especially the episcopus of a Christian assembly is elected by the assembly, not appointed by any outside power like a pope. There's no foundation at all for that in the scripture. There's no foundation for any organization to appoint a ruler or a leader over any community Christian assembly of Christians. There's no there's no room at all in scripture for that. We'll see that the assemblies chose their own leaders and rulers or overseers and, and servants, which is what we're going to get to next. Diakonos. Diakonos is a noun in Greek, and it means a servant, a waiting man. Latin word is, the Latin equivalent is minister, and that's where we get our word minister from. It appears 30 times in the New Testament in transliteration. It is the source of the borrowed church word deacon. Old English diacon and late Latin diaconus is in the, the King James ministers or minister 20 times and servant or servants 7 times. Either of these translations are acceptable, as long as the term minister is understood to mean a servant and not ever taken as someone in a position of authority. Because the Greek meaning of the word does not bear out that it could be held by anybody in a position of authority. It's somebody in a position of servitude. So a diaconist or a minister never has authority. He's only a servant. On three occasions, the King James Version renders this word as deacon. And those three occasions are Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3.8, and 1 Timothy 3.12. And that's not acceptable to me at all. Because 
I think that that's a purposeful ploy to manipulate renderings of the word and so as to somehow support an artificial structure of the organized church where, where deacons are, are a separate role in modern churches from ministers. And, and that's, that's, a false, um, that's a false model. That's not a, a scriptural model. Because the word means this, it, it's the same word in Greek. Could that have anything to do with supporting what the Church of England believed at the time of uh, King James? Well, well, I think it does because their ministers are actually more like um, a professional priesthood, and and they would appoint deacons from the community to help in, in certain um, capacities. And, and they make a distinguishment, but scripturally there should never be a distinguishment. All ministers are servants, and they should all be appointed from the community well, and not ordained by any professional priesthood. Well, the Church of England is not too far removed from the Catholic Church. You know, it wasn't Henry VIII that... Uh... Well, right. It's the Catholic Church with a king instead of a pope. It's really no different. It's some of its structure is different. Basically, it's the same. It's the same beast. It's a, it's an independent. It's like a prodigal son of the beast. <laughs> so whether we like it or not, there's a there's a little bit of Catholicism in the King James King James Bible. Oh yes, there's a lot of Catholicism in the King James Bible, no doubt. And and there's a lot of Catholicism in Lutheranism. They didn't go far enough. The Reformers didn't reform far enough. And the Anglican Church hardly reformed at all. They you know, they only traded one beast for another. The related noun diaconia is the office of a diaconus. It's a servant. It's a service or an attendance on a duty. It, it's it's the act of doing the uh, the role of the servant, basically. The King James Version translates it to minister, administration, ministering, ministry, ministration, relief, service, or office. But it's basically, it's, it's the noun that describes the role of the diaconos fills. The verb diaconio is, is the verb of the same word, and it's to minister, to serve, to do service, to furnish or supply somebody with something. And 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 these words should always be taken in that um in that light. That they should never mean anything about authority. A, a minister is always a servant and never has authority. In my own translations, diaconus is almost always a servant, but sometimes it's minister. And diaconial, the verb is always to serve, but sometimes it's to minister. And and diaconia is almost always a service. But sometimes it, it could be an attendance or a ministry or an office. It, it depends on the context. But these words never have any um, any appearance in, in my translations that the, the person who holds that office or who performs that service is, is a member, is um, an authority figure. And Paul never used the word in, in that vein. 
Well, really, a minister is, uh, takes the lowest position of all, doesn't he? As a Absolutely. Servant. He's a servant of the assembly. He's I mean, doing... another way would be as a slave. Well, yes, and the, the verb diakonos can be translated slave. Yes, it can. E even though doulos is more appropriately a slave. There is another word for bondman or slave, doulos, that, that really signifies slavery and bondage. Chirotonio. Now, now, there's a huge difference in my translation and, and the King James Version here. Chirotonio actually means to, like, stretch out the hand. It's a verb. And it only appears twice in the New Testament. But it's a very important word. Because its interpretation determines whether a Christian assembly should select its own elders and thereby remain its own leaders and thereby remain autonomous, or whether some outside supposed authority selects those leaders. And and this is very this this cannot the importance of this cannot be stressed more. Liddell and Scott, the Greek lexicon defines chirotonio to stretch out the hand for the purpose of voting, to vote for or to elect properly by a show of hands. In the passive, it means to be elected. And there was another Greek word, you know, lakine, which meant to be appointed by lot. In other words, if, if we were in a community and we were choosing a leader, we, we could choose to elect one, or we could choose to um, to throw lots. And and that's the way it was done. And and this word, chirotonio, is used by Paul with a specific purpose. In, in the appointing of, in describing the appointing of leaders over the Christian assemblies that he founded. And the King James has definitely perverted that purpose. I'm going to read Acts 14.23 from the King James. And when they had ordained them elders in every church. That word ordained is what they got from Chirotonio. And had prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord on whom they believed. And that Acts 14.23 right there contains several errors. And, and I, can't, I, I can't discuss them all at length here. But I'll say that what Acts 14.23 should say is, and elders being elected by them in each assembly, praying with fasting, they presented them in whom they had confidence with the authority. The important issue to note here is that Chirotonio is rendered elected, as it appears here in the past tense, and not ordained. And that's extremely important, because one reading, the King James reading, would lead Christians to believe that Paul and the people with him at this assembly ordained the elders of the assembly. But the other reading, my reading of the Greek, would lead people to believe that the people of the assembly elected its own elders. And that is consistent with Scripture. 
no outside authority can ordain, or at least lawfully according to the scripture, can ordain an authority over the assembly. The assembly, the people of the assembly choose their own leaders. The second occurrence of Chirotonio in the New Testament is at 2 Corinthians 8.19. And this verse is rendered in part by the King James. And not that only, but who is also chosen of the churches to travel with us in this grace. And that language is quite ambiguous. From my own edition of Paul's epistles, the same scripture reads, and not only, but our fellow traveler has also been handpicked by the assemblies to be endued with this favor. And that word handpicked may just as well have been elected in my translation. It was the assemblies who chose who was going to represent them by traveling to Jerusalem with Paul to present their gift to the needy? Paul himself did not make the decision. It's the assemblies that chose who was going to go with Paul. And this is even more evident reading verse 8, 18 in 2 Corinthians, which I have read in my translation. And we have sent along with him that brother of whom there is approval in the good message throughout all of the assemblies. In other words, the assemblies approved that brother for this mission that Paul's talking about. So the assembly votes for its own leaders. That's the Christian way. The, the Bishop of Rome doesn't appoint leaders over all the churches of the Christian world. That's the Roman tyrannical way. There's a big difference there. Christianity, I mean, somebody said Christianity is a great religion, but it's never been tried, right? Well, he was pretty accurate. <laughs> Would there be any uh, thing uh, like uh, they elected a particular person uh, to be uh, bishop or minister, or whatever that that they would uh, uh, have a laying on of hands ceremony uh, on that? Uh... Well, Paul talks about the laying on of hands ceremony, and and that's done by the elders in the assembly. And, and Peter and James mentioned that too. But it's done by the elders of an assembly. And I think that that's more a, um, it's more a token demonstration that you or the, or the person who's, who's receiving the laying on of hands is accepted into a position, whatever it may be, by the elders of the assembly. That's the what that's all about. The reason I ask about it is because Supposedly, in the Celtic Church, you know, uh, which uh, was the second church after Jerusalem, and uh, all down until it was sold out in the 1100s to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it uh, uh, there was a process of laying on of hands that started even with the apostles and, and came on down uh, to that point, and then when they when the uh, Roman Catholic Church they they appointed all new priests and they discontinued dis discontinued the uh, laying on of hands, and I just wonder if there's anything important of laying on of hands. Well, yeah, you know, in in the apostolic age, the um, 
the spirit what was was granted by Yahweh after the laying on of hands. And I think that later it just became a token symbol of acceptance. And and we have it today. I mean, after we make a deal, we make a handshake, right? And, and I think that that can't, you know, let's say, um, I mean, handshakes are very old from, from, handshakes are as old as time. But I think that today when an assembly of, Men makes a decision and everybody shakes hands afterward. That that's sort of what that is the same. It's a representation of the same token of acceptance that the assembly would meet and they they would choose a leader or a minister or an overseer and that they would have the laying on of hands afterwards. It's basically the same thing that they're accepting this individual in the role that he's been chosen for. That's what I believe that represents. I mean, that's that might be considered conjectural, but I'd like to see a better explanation. That's all. I can see better explanations than the ones I have. <laughs> I can admit that. <laughs> I just uh, kind of wondered about that, and uh, I, I've read about it, and uh, I don't know where to really place the emphasis on it. Of course, these charismatics, they, uh, they go, uh, they even lay their hands on the television set, <laughs> which doesn't seem practical. Well, that's, they're just nuts. That, that's, I can't even go there. I don't even pay attention to what they do today. It's crazy. That they do everything for all the wrong reasons. There are many Greek words which may be rendered, rendered appointed chosen or ordained in English. And and Paul uses them all the time. But the use of this word kairotonio by, by Luke and Paul in these two chapters, in these two passages where elders or, or servants of the, the assembly are being um, chosen by the assembly, it is very telling and it's very clear. It very clearly shows in both the context and the definition that the leaders and servants of the Christian assembly should be elected by that assembly. The assembly chooses its own leaders. No one sets leaders over them as the so-called churches do today. And there is no other passage in the New Testament which gives credence to such an idea. The Romish church built its authority upon the decrees of Justinian, and its own false claims, and the ignorant masses were led to believe them, just as so many people still do today. None of this can be blamed on Paul. Paul demonstrates that the practice of an assembly choosing elders and leaders was done by a show of hands, by that assembly. In the definitions of the words used in the New Testament given previously, we have seen what appears to be two positions of authority within the Christian assembly. These are the episcopus, overseer or bishop, or supervisor, and the presbyteros, or the elder. That these are legitimate positions within the assembly is found not only because Paul uses the terms in such a context, but Peter, James, and John do likewise. 
and their doing so verifies many of Paul's statements for us. For instance, see 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, James 5.14, Revelation 4.4, Revelation 4.10, and other, other verses. That these two offices are actually one and the same is fully evident from the discourse in Acts chapter 20 at verses 17 and 28. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to track them down, but I think I have Luke in front of me right now. Matthew. I should have um pulled more passages for this for this paper. So I'm sorry, I'm slow. Acts 20:17, and for Miletus sending to Ephesus, he, meaning Paul, called for the elders, or the presbyteroi, of the assembly. So he calls them elders in Acts 20:17. In Acts 20:28, 20, you take heed for yourselves and for all the flock over which the Holy Spirit appointed you overseers to tend to the assembly of Yahweh. So we see that the words are used interchangeably. That there's, there's really one elder or overseer for the assembly, and, and or, or it's really not defined that there's only one, but there could be one set of elders or overseers working together for an assembly. And, and that's not really defined in the scriptures. I think it's up to the individual assembly and their requirements. And some assemblies are small in small towns, and some assemblies are large in large cities, and, and of course they would need more than one, right? And, and I think that that's basically left up to Christians to decide that. It, it's not um. There's no there's no schematic given in Scripture for, for situations like that. And if the assembly has the capacity and and the, is entrusted to elect its own leaders, it should determine what it needs, right? It should be given that same authority to determine what it needs on its own. Of course, Paul uh, sort of spelled out the uh, qualifications that leaders should uh, have. Right, absolutely, and, and he does that in, in one Timothy chapter three, and, and I think we'll get we'll have time to get into that. I, I think we're I'm not going to stop at an hour and a half here tonight. I mean, it's 9.30 now, but I'm not going to stop now. I want to. I would like to get through most of this. Peter discusses the role of an elder at 1 Peter 5.1 and, and, and subsequent verses, where he states that they should lead by example and not lord or become a dictator, which is what that means, over the assembly. Likewise, Paul discusses the role of the supervisor, at 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, that elder and supervisor are one and the same role, Sayer discusses at length in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament under the word presbyteros, that they, meaning the hoi presbyteroi, or the elders, did not differ at all from the episcopoi, or the bishops or overseers, is also acknowledged by Jerome, where he comments on Titus 1.5. It is evident from the fact that the two words are used indiscriminately, and he cites those verses I just did, Acts 
chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, and Titus 1, 5 and 7. And that the duty of presbyters or elders is described by the term episcopine at Peter 1 Peter verse 1. And episcope, which is the office of an episcopus, in, in Clement's epistle to the Romans, which is an early first century Christian epistle. Accordingly, only two ecclesiastical officers, the episcopoi and the diaconoi, which are the overseers or supervisors, and the ministers or servants, are distinguished in Philippians and 1 Timothy. The title episcopus denotes the function. Presbyteros or elder, denotes the dignity. The former was borrowed from Greek institutions and the later from the Judean. James also mentions elders in his epistle, and they are discussed again by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So, so what Thayer is saying is that the presbyteros is the same as the episcopus, that the Christian assembly only has the proper Christian assembly only has two types of elected servant, and one is the minister or servant, the diaconus, and the other one is the elder or the overseer. The presbyteros and the episcopus um, referring to the same office. So we should, every, Christ, every autonomous Christian assembly should elect an overseer and, and choose its ministers or, or its servants for, for the purposes that it needs to be served. And there is no other Christian governance except the, the scripture in Yahshua Christ and his word. That's it. No response to that, Clifton. Oh, uh, I, I was thinking of, of, you know, what kind of a comment I could make. I can't think of it. I, I, I'm just following you, and I suppose there's several other people that's following you, too. And uh, uh, I, I'm impressed that uh, that, uh, that that there there is no uh, dictator supposed to be in the church, like a pope or some other office, and uh, that... Uh, it definitely should be uh, uh, voted on by the assemblies. Absolutely. There's no room for a pope in the scripture. There's no room for a um, for, for this um, for, for the schematic that the the um, the Romish Church has, which is um, a bishop of a diocese, cardinals, um, the 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 full-time ritual-conducting priests. None, none of this is Christian. It's all pagan Rome. Of course, you get in the Catholic Church, you got a black pope, and, you, and then you got Jesuit priests. and seniors and, and all, all sorts of offices that, that don't wash. None of them are in Scripture. None of them. They're all garbage. They're all made up. Institutions of, of man to control to control people and, and to rule over people. So a minister is one who serves the assembly in a certain task, or even multiple tasks. I I, I missed something. 
okay, any person at any time may serve as a minister to an assembly, and even voluntarily. And, and Paul talks about self-appointed volunteers in an assembly in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 15. Uh, I mean, if we're in a community and you see a void that, that needs to be filled, you step up and you fill it, right? It is clear from 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, in conjunction with other statements of Paul, that minister may also be an office in the assembly to which one or more persons may be elected, each performing some specified function for a given period of time. These may be teachers or messengers or caretakers of the elderly or any other capacity which the community of Christians may require or even desire. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12 lists some of the functions which a minister may, choose, may be chosen to perform, and other functions are evident elsewhere, such as Acts 6, 1 to 7, Romans 16, 1 and 2, Timothy 2, 2, and 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11. So a minister is one who serves the assembly in a certain task, or even multiple tasks, depending upon his or her abilities. A minister is a servant, not an authority figure, and surely his work must be monitored by the overseers. Various gifts beneficial to the assembly are discussed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. At Romans 12:7, diaconia, a ministering or administration, is listed as one of these gifts, for which also note 1 Corinthians 12:5. And, and that's just, I, I mean, not all of us have organizing skills, and not all of us have teaching skills. So it's clear that, that the the um, office of minister would be better filled by others, by, by certain people who have those skills. Yet 1 Corinthians 14.26 forward reinforces the notion that any member of the assembly, and not just a selected minister, may share his gift insights or abilities with the assembly. In other words, this is not a top-down organization, Christianity, is it? It's a very flat organization with only one leader, Joshua Christ. Would you agree with that? Yeah. We're, not a, we're, we're not the pyramid that the, the Romish church and the people conquerors would like to be, would like to make? Well, that's why we need to go to the scriptures a lot of time when we have problems to see See what the scriptures say to settle the problems, and and too many times they uh, they try to settle things according to man's uh, uh, wisdom. Well, right. And the way I look at it is that if the if the Roman Church wants to rule over men, and you're attending the Roman Church, then you're signing on to that. You're giving them your stamp of approval. Well, that that or any other church that you voluntarily. Right. Exactly, any organization. And if they're lying to people, you're giving that your stamp of approval too well, yeah. when you show up in those buildings. There's no doubt. Numbers 1, 3, forward. All men of age, 20 years, in a Christian community are equals. For which see 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26, and James 2, 1. James chapter 2, actually, 
with a certain amount of deference given to those who are older than us, who are upright members of the community, for which see 1 Peter 5, 5. As we have seen, an elder or an overseer is not a lord or a boss, but a leader who teaches by example. The verb which is rendered to rule in the King James Version at Romans 12.8 and 1 Timothy 3.4 and 5 and 1 Timothy 5.17, that word is proestami, and it means merely to lead, govern, preside, direct, or manage. It is not to rule. Most literally, it is simply to stand before. And the King James renders it to rule. And there are many other Greek terms which could have been used to describe that, as the organized church would have it, of their appointed bishops. And and that's another word that's been perverted to make it look like appointed bishops have authority over assemblies. And it's simply not true. Because the verb doesn't mean to rule. I wonder how Young's got that. Peter Liu. We have also seen that a minister is not an authority figure, but a minister is a servant. A minister is not a preacher, but maybe a teacher or a proclaimer of the word, or an administrator of some other tasks. And a good example from Scripture is in Acts, where... um, where they needed somebody to attend the ministration of tables. In other words, to make the um to make sure that all of the widows were, were treated equally and equitably. In Acts I think it's chapter six. Just before the stoning of Stephen, because Stephen was one of those men who were chosen for that service. So they were really the first Christian ministers, weren't they? Those seven men. No. Yeah. Aside from Christ and the apostles. They were chosen. They were elected by the people. The people elected them, if you go back and look at the account. They were chosen. The apostles did not appoint them. The people elected them to look out for the the widows. You know, we got a little bit different situation today. Uh, What we're in is so fragmented, it, it would be awful hard to live up to all the Exactly. Um, although, I mean, all you need is two people and you can have a meeting. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, we have a much different situation today. But what we're doing is we are um, contrasting the way the Catholic Church ruled over Europe for <laughs> over a thousand years and, and and what Paul really intended it to be. <laughs> well, at least we can f- figure out what we're not supposed to do. Exactly. And and there's no, um, the, the bottom line is that there's no blaming the apostles or especially Paul for what this Roman Catholic Church became. There's absolutely no room for that. And, and the people that blame Paul for the church are absolutely wrongheaded and they're ignorant, ignorant of scripture and they're ignorant of history. They're especially early Christian history. Well, they they uh, they don't seem to be ashamed to open up their mouth and 
witness to everybody that they are ignorant. Display their ignorance. Absolutely. And Peter Lou wants me to do a translation from the received text, but received text is garbage. The, the Codex Sinaiticus is much better than the received text. The received text is full of interpolations. It, it's full of um, marginal readings. It's full of late um, inventions from medieval scribes. I don't know why you would want the. I don't know why you would respect the, the received text. That's just crazy. Read the Codex Sinaiticus. Read the Codex Vaticanus. And all of the passages that are very different or, or not in the received text, read the ancient papyri. There's papyri of John that, that are from the 2nd and 3rd century that have um, – there's verses like John 5, 4 that aren't in those papyri, that aren't in the Codex Sinaiticus that aren't in the Codex Vaticanus, but all of a sudden they appear in the Middle Ages in the received text. And, and the, did you know that the, the phrase received text is actually a printer's boast? The Dutch printing family Elzevir took this text, made some changes to it, called it the received text when he printed it, and it's his boast to get people to buy his his version of the Greek New Testament. It's a printer's <laughs> boast. Well, the problem is we don't uh, uh, we don't have hardly uh, about the only thing you can do, uh, of course, until you come along on the New Testament. But the only thing you can do is, is go go through about uh, 50 Bibles and, and see how they're translated and maybe where they all kind of read alike. You don't uh, uh, maybe worry too much about it, but where they don't read alike, it, it makes you wonder. Right. In a lot of places where they all read alike, they're all making the same mistake. Like Yeah, the that, one, that could be it too. Like the end of 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians 16.20 in those words, Anathema Maranatha, that they all get wrong. Uh-huh. Which say that um that they basically say he who, who loves not Joshua Christ is accursed, a rebel to be destroyed. I wonder how Young's got that, Peter. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, I think we made our point. I mean, we can continue to, to talk about this. I mean, there's a lot of other errors, and, and I still have about eight more pages of this uh, paper. The one thing you didn't uh, maybe you should say just a little bit about is, is uh, about the women, which you, uh, uh, in one well, part of your paper, you... Uh, well, it is in one part of my paper. It talks about women, and women can act as ministers. Women can be ministers, but women cannot scripturally rule over or teach men but phoebe was a minister to the assembly when she delivered the um she was delivering paul's letters to the assemblies and and paul you know included with her letters of introduction and and she would um and and that's a capacity where a woman is serving as the assembly but priscilla even more so 
Prisca was actually a um, with, with her husband, but she was actually out um, beating the beating the passes, evangelizing for Yahshua. Basically, she she was um, and and Paul talked very well about her and, and all of the services that she she had done for him, and in several places. And there was even uh, some prophet, some women prophetesses. Yes, there were, along were the line. women prophetesses, not in the sense of the Old Testament prophets. On you know they weren't um, writing the oracles of Yahweh for the future for sure. But but a prophet in the Christian sense from the time of the cross is actually somebody who reveals hidden secrets. It, it's some, and and I can demonstrate this. This is really a separate topic that we would have to talk about. And, and women aren't to teach a rule over men, but women can perform deeds for the assembly in the in the capacity of a diaconess. And Paul even counted women as his colleagues in Romans chapter sixteen one to three, one Corinthians sixteen nineteen, Philippians four three. And while Paul says that women are forbidden to speak in the assembly, 1 Corinthians 14.34, they can't teach or, or they can't be chosen as elders or have positions of authority over men, 1 Timothy 2.12, yet women can serve the assembly and, and, and they are not to be demeaned by any means. They're to be respected. They're not to be belittled. Well, if if a woman if a woman has uh, a few children and her husband dies, she has to become the priest of the house. Well, right. There's always exceptions, you know, uh, under certain circumstances. When when the man isn't doing his job, somebody's got to step in and do some of these things. Exactly, and quite often today in today's day and world, women have to step up to the plate because all the men are. Um... So most of the men are more are women well, more they, than the women are. They've turned into women. <laughs> yes, they have. Many of our men are actually um, absolutely effeminized, and I'd probably rely on many of our women first. <laughs> it's sad, but Elizabeth Dilling is 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 a woman that I admire quite a bit, uh, and. Um... Uh, she was a woman at a certain time, and she she found out what was going on in this world, and she did a good job of writing about it. But I, I would imagine that most churches would have refused to give her time uh, in the pulpit. Right, and, and Elizabeth Dilling, while she's an exception, she's a woman that filled a very crucial role and a very good role. Yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And and there's there's things that the women can do. There's... And, and all the men were watching football. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely true. Okay. Surely the above advice given by Paul at 2 Thessalonians 3.14, 1 Timothy 6.3, and Titus 3.10 must be applied to every and any member of the assembly. I'm looking for, for I know I mentioned it, but I'm looking for the specific references of what what advice that was. I dropped the ball on that. I'm sorry. 
This must be necessarily conducted before the assembly which would decide the issue. Officers elected by the assembly must therefore be answerable only to the assembly. And, and what he's talking about is accusations against elders. All right, I got it now. A minister is not a preacher, but his word is okay. A minister is not a preacher, but maybe a teacher or a proclaimer of the word or an administrator of some other task. Yahshua Christ, and by extension his word in Scripture, New Testament and Old, is the only authority. All matters should be brought before the assembly and judged according to the word, which shall be discussed at greater length below. One important difference from the Old Testament judges that model is explained in 1 Corinthians 5. Those who have erred terribly should at the most be excluded from the community rather than condemned or stoned, and Yahweh will see that they are judged. The Christian assembly being autonomous and answering to no other authority except the word must therefore assume responsibility for itself and not turn to secular authorities to fulfill its needs. Those who look to the governments of man to solve their problems invite the governments of man to become involved in every facet of their lives. And we see that more and more today. The government becomes their God. One may deny the veracity of such a broad statement, yet this is the very dilemma which we in America do suffer today. The Christian assembly provides for its own members and resolves its own social problems. And this is the clear example given in Acts in chapters 2, verses 44 to 46, Chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, and chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. Note also in chapter 6 of Acts that when the apostles recommended that men be selected to serve the assembly by managing a particular necessity, and that's talking about Stephen and the other six, that the people chose the men and not the apostles. This example, like those previously discussed here, show again that it's the people of the assembly who choose their own leaders and ministers. Not even Peter, James, or John would dictate by appointing these men over the assembly. Why should any organized church at the time of the apostles or since, or even in the identity assemblies of today, assume that they have a right to do otherwise? Certainly Paul wouldn't have, as we've already seen here. And these examples of Christian social life set forth in Acts are also evident in Paul's epistles, for example, in 1 Timothy 5, 1-16. So we see a totally different model for, um, for governance of the people of God than, than the one the Catholics gave us, huh? The Christian assembly providing duties of community to its own members. The members must only look to the assembly for those services. This is explained by Paul concerning matters of justice at 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, which are poorly translated into King James. Since the secular authorities disdain the laws of Yahweh, they cannot judge righteously nor can they provide for a community righteously. And therefore, they should be avoided by Christians. 
My own translation of 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 and 13, reads thusly. What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those among you or within you, but those outside Yahweh judges. Therefore you will, you will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. The Christian community must expel wrongdoers and not judge, i.e. condemn. That's what that means and not condemn them, trusting that Yahweh himself will see to it that they are treated in accordance with their deeds. That's Paul's lesson in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, my own translation of 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11, reads thusly. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, have it decided before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the society? And if by you the society is judged, are you unworthy of the smallest trials? Do you not know that we will judge the messengers, let alone the things of this life? So then, if you should have trial of things pertaining to this life, those who esteem themselves the least in the assembly, those will be set to judge. I speak from respect to you. So is there among you not even one wise who would be able to decide amongst his brethren? But brother is brought to trial by brother, and this before those not believing? So then already there is altogether discomfiture among you, seeing that you have matters for judgment amongst yourselves. Why would you still not more be wronged? Why would you still not more be defrauded? You would rather do wrong and defraud than this of a brother? Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor, nor the rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have deemed fit in the name of Prince Joshua Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Paul's telling the assembly that first they should never have matters of judgment against their brethren. But if they do, then they should take one of the humblest people in their assembly, in their community, and have him decide the matter. That's what Paul is saying. Any response, Clifton? No, I think you summed things up pretty well uh, uh, with this last. Um... All right. Paul's definitely telling them not to sue for justice before the unrighteous, non-Christian secular authorities, especially in today's justice system. You want to sue your brother and bring him in front of a Jew judge? You will be defrauded. With a Jew lawyer, you're going to hire a Jew lawyer and bring him in front of a Jew judge. That, that's really Christian. <laughs> well, the only way you get anything out of it if the Jews got something to gain. Right, absolutely. The Jews going to screw He's you gonna and take your brother. The biggest piece of pie. <laughs> That's the, hor the the most horrible thing a Christian could do is to sue another Christian in a Jew court with a Jew lawyer and a Jew judge. <laughs> that would be absolutely crazy. <laughs> 
And that's what Paul's saying. The local ecclesia, the assembly or the Christian community, answers to no authority except the word. There is no basis for a single one-world command structure such as the Romish Catholic Church is organized. Paul certainly never recommended such a thing. If the individual ecclesias could settle the, the problems within their own group, there probably wouldn't be too many problems. If the individual assemblies of, of Yahweh settled everything within, in their own group, Babylon would fall. If they didn't sign up for all this Jew bullshit, Babylon would crumble. If they stayed out of the courts and out of the, out of the um, sports arenas and out of the um, out of the out of the the movie houses, we'd do just fine. And the whole Jew system would come tumbling down, I think. But they'd rather be um, watching football on TV and sitting in John Hagee's pews or, or um, Joel Lostein's or whoever. Well, you know, if, if the churches would just even take care of the widows and stuff like that, well, there'd be so many people come to the church, they wouldn't have find room for them. Well, I, I know that there's one Catholic parish, and I'm going to use it as an example because it's the um, the last one I lived in, was St. Andrew's in Bayonne, New Jersey, and they took care of the widows. They made sure that every widow in downtown Bayonne left them their house. They owned more real estate in downtown Bayonne than anybody else uh, by far. It, it was incredible. They owned more real estate in Bayonne than the city did. <laughs> they owned about half the houses on 4th and 5th Street in Bayonne. It's crazy. They, mm -hmm. All these widows would leave the church their house, leave the Take church Take care of the house. widows and orphans. And, and they were the biggest landlord in town. Mm -hmm. They were taking care of the widows and orphans, all right. The orphans were broken. The widows were leaving the church, the houses. <laughs> They're just a bunch of hucksters. Okay. Are elder, overseer, minister, or servant full-time positions? Should these officers receive compensation from the assembly, living off the goodwill of the assembly? Although such need not be encouraged, it is not unlawful. Romans 15.27 and 1 Corinthians 9.1-18. And, and Paul also explains why he did not marry there, and that he need not have lived in poverty, which are both contrary to Romish church dogma. Paul explains that he chose not to marry for the sake of the assembly, but he said that marriage is valuable in every way. And he explains that he chose to work with his own hands to support himself while he could have lived off the assemblies. And that's the, the example which Paul made was to preach the gospel without burdening the assembly and without cost to the hearers of the gospel. And he explains that in 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, and 2 Thessalonians. He also chose to work at labor in order to support himself. Acts chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And he recommended to his followers that they follow his example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and 1 Timothy 5, 8. While Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 18, why he and Barnabas chose not to marry. And, and when you're traveling around the ancient world, a, a wife would have been a huge burden, wouldn't she have been? 
Uh, I mean, a wife and children, would he would have never been able to do the things he did. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and he would have had to spend twice as many hours working to support a wife and 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 possibly children. So, so he'd have never had time for the work. So that's why he chose not to marry, and he explains that. While Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9 why he and Barnabas chose not to marry, he instructs that elders and ministers of the Christian assembly not only should be married, but they must be married. And that's not hypocritical on Paul's part, because Paul is, um, the office of apostle is quite different than the office of a, a minister of a local assembly. It just is, let's face it. In other words, uh, uh, being married is one of the requirements for holding an office, right? Well, right. The being married and being the husband of one wife is the it, it's not a, it's a requirement. It's according to the apostles, it's a requirement. And and the church is directly contrary. The, the organized church is directly contrary to that requirement. And Paul explains in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that if you can't – I'm going to um, read my translation of 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13. Trustworthy is, is this saying, if anyone strives for an office of supervisor or an episcopus, he is desirous of a good work. Therefore, it is necessary for that supervisor to be irreproachable, a husband of one wife, sober, discreet, orderly, hospitable, inclined to teach, not a drunkard, well, that leaves about, out about every priest I ever knew, not a brawler, but reasonable, not contentious, not loving money, they go to Protestants, governing his own house well, having children in subjection with all reference. Now, if one does not know to govern his own house, how would he care for an assembly of Yahweh? And that's Paul's question, not mine. Not a neophyte, lest he blinded with pride, he would fall into condemnation of the false accuser. Now it is necessary also to have a good accreditation from those outside, lest he fall into a reproach and a trap of the false accuser. In other words, don't give your enemies any excuses. In like manner, reverent ministers, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not shamefully desirous of gain, holding the mystery of the faith with a clean conscience. But even they must be scrutinized first. Then, void, then being void of offense, they must minister. Likewise, reverent wives, not slanderous, sober, trustworthy in all, ministers must be husbands of one wife governing their children and their own houses well. Now, I know that the, um, the King James translates that deacons there, and it's a lie. Verse 13, For they that are ministering well obtain for themselves a good degree and much liberty and faith, which is in Christ Joshua. These remarks alone by Paul disqualify nearly every, if not every, Roman Catholic Pope, Cardinal, Bishop, or priest from the service to the true assemblies of Yahweh. And they disqualify many of those belonging to the Protestant sects as well. So they're all disqualified. They're all excommunicated. 
<laughs> but we should make a declaration. <laughs> I'm kidding. There's no prescription in Paul's letters or anywhere in the New Testament for popes, cardinals, or priests. All references to priests in Paul's letters, except for the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is Christ, are in the context of the Old Covenant, where the performance of prescribed rituals at precise times, along with other duties, necessitated it necessitated a professional priesthood. Romish sacramentalism and their priesthood are vestiges of Babylonian paganism readily adopted by the later church and adapted to their perverted interpretations of the New Testament in order to satisfy their desire for control over the people. But none of this can be blamed on Paul, who consistently states in his epistles that the rituals, which he calls the works of the law, have been done away with in the New, in the new Covenant. Yeah, you've pretty well covered your paper now, haven't you? Um, yeah, my paper's pretty much covered. I, I mean, I don't even really need to. I think we made our point. That, that's the point I wanted to make was that um, that nobody can look to the apostles, to the New Testament, to the epistles of Paul for the foundation of, of Romish churchianity that, as, as we've learned to know it, which really began in the 5th century, 6th century. Yeah, you know, when um, Theodosius II, he made Christianity the official religion of the empire in the 5th century. That put a lot of pagan priests out of work. And, mm -hmm. and they all became Christian priests overnight. But the early church writers, the Antinicene fathers, they make no mention of Christian priests. Uh-huh. These Christian priests, they, they appear in, in the 4th and 5th, 6th centuries. The apostles didn't leave that behind. They imposed themselves on us. They have no um, no office. They have no Christian office. If you see a priest, you're not looking at a Christian. If he was a real Christian, he wouldn't be a priest. How could you be a priest and a Christian? The two are polar opposites. And you mentioned if if anybody around it may have a little semblance of uh, a, a biblical um, uh, situation, you know, uh, according to the way uh, Paul uh, would um, describe it, it would be the Amish and Mennonites. Of course, uh, there's a no; they aren't uh, particularly. Uh, to be looked up to as uh, avoiding all modern appliances and stuff. Uh, but uh, Well, right. There's no reason to, to disdain tools. Modern technology is a tool. Yeah. You can misuse a hammer. But I, they I do mean, have a little bit different system of, uh, like somebody gets married, they'll get a gang around and, and put up a house for them. Right, like they have. That. They have. Um, they're probably the closest to Christian community that than we see in the modern age. They are the Amish and the Mennonites. That they have the church model right. 
They're their own autonomous assembly. They, they elect their own leaders. Their leaders are responsible to them, and they help each other. They help each other build houses. They help each other build barns that they keep to themselves. They disdain technology. I don't, I don't see a need for disdaining technology, but I'll tell you one thing. I think that their disdainment of technology, their rejection of technology, has probably helped keep their gene pool pretty much um, consistent because you can't get a nigger to separate himself from his boom box. So he can't run off and join a Mennonite community. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> they might let the nigger in, but they ain't letting that boom box in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's um, they're the closest model for um, to, uh, and they're not ideal, but they're they're real close. And um, I have to say it, and and even but even some of the Amish communities, they do rely on tourist dollars. Well, they'll get together and, and like uh, build buildings for each other, a barn or something like that. But our churches today, what they do, they get around and 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 build an addition onto a house or a garage for some foreigner that's uh, moved into the country. Right, exactly. There's no help for anybody in the church. I know. I I know that from experience. When my own family had, um, when I was a child, my own family needed help, and and the church was nowhere to be found. I didn't when I was I didn't leave school because I um because I wanted to. It's a long story. I'd rather not get into. But but I I lost all respect for the for anything Catholic right then. Right in there. Okay, I'm, I mean, I'm. I think we pretty much covered this topic. I, I don't see how anybody could blame Paul for the Catholic Church. Yeah. That, that's the gist here, and and it's um, it's it's ridiculous for for even us, especially us, to accept the Catholic lies that the the Catholic Church is based on the, these early apostles is just absurd. It does not wash with history. They are a, a priest cult, a priest craft, and and a gang of political opportunists that arose with the the legalization and later the officialization of Christianity in the fifth and sixth centuries. And and they're the same political opportunists that, that arise up everywhere else there's a need for for them or, or there's a, a void for them I should say I don't think there's a whole lot more can, there's probably more that can be said on it but I think think it's been covered pretty well and and it sure gives you a different picture of what the church ought to be or the ecclesia ought to be than, than uh, what we see today absolutely like like I said before that who I, I can never remember his name. Christianity is a great religion, but it hasn't been tried yet. Or uh, it's perfectly true. We have not practiced Christianity since the first century. True Christian community, and and it, it really, uh, I mean, some of us have practiced it some of the time, and and that's obviously not enough. Mm-hmm. And, and if we if most of us practiced it all of the time. Babylon and the Jews would have never had a chance.
and and we don't need um well today they're they're bringing Jews in all the seminaries and stuff you know right we we don't need anything but repentance and and a separation from all of that and and that's the only thing that's going to heal us uh, aside from you know Yahshua himself destroying our enemies but but our separation and and repentance goes hand in hand with that there's no redemption unless we um Repent and realize our wrongs. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Clifton. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have a good time. Take care. Bless you. Bye.